Hey, welcome everyone to Drisha's full program and the first of a three-part series on caring for others, the Torah and ourselves, Jewish perspectives on the ethics of care. Today's class will serve as an introduction to care ethics. We'll explore some of the key philosophical ideas that care ethicists have presented and then use them to analyze a few sugiyot about how caring for children can make us better alachic decision makers. It's my pleasure to introduce Sarah Zager tonight. Sarah Zager is a doctoral candidate in religious studies and philosophy at Yale University, where her research focuses on the influence of Judaism and Christianity on moral philosophy. Originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Sarah earned an MA in religion from the University of Chicago Divinity School and a BA from Williams College. She's currently a David Hartman Cent Center Fellow at Shalom. It was a David Hartman Center Fellow. I'm no longer actually. But oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Might be an old bio. That's <laughs> <Thank> okay. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. She was a David Hartman Center Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. She was also a recipient of the Leo Beck Fellowship and Cardasso Law School's Jewish Law and Legal Theory Graduate Fellowship and has learned at Yeshivat Hadal. Sarah has written for the Leras Jew School, the Journal of Jewish Ethics, the Journal of Textual Reasoning, and the Journal of Religion. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Um, it is really a pleasure to be here with you on this, at least where I am slightly chilly New England evening um, for this series on care ethics. So I want to give you just a little bit of a, a heads up of where we're headed over the course of this series and then over the course of the next hour. So in this series, we're going to be using care ethics, which is a sort of growing, growing strong field in philosophy and religious studies and, and Jewish studies, especially um, to illuminate some Jewish sources, but also to use Jewish sources to help us kind of expand our notion of the ethics of care and actually see if we can do some new philosophy with the Jewish sources. So over the course of this series, um, today, as you heard, is gonna be a kind of introductory class on what is this field of philosophy and how might it be helpful to us? So we'll connect it up with a couple of rabbinic texts. Um, in the second session in the series, we'll be looking at how care ethics can illuminate our understanding of obligation or chiyuv. We'll be looking especially at one recent effort to think about care ethics in Judaism, Mara Benjamin's book, The Obligated Self. And then in the third session, um, I'm going to present a vision for some, what I take to be distinctly Jewish, or at least sort of very prevalent in Jewish thought, forms of ethics of care that focus on experiences that don't usually end up as central in ethics of care, especially experiences of infertility and pregnancy loss. So that's where we're headed over the course of the three sessions. So today, really what I wanna do is give us a sense of what is this field of philosophy called care ethics and why might we be interested in thinking about it in relation to Judaism? So I think we often have a sense that ethics plays some sort of central role in Judaism and in Jewish life. But we don't always have, I think, very clear terminology about what that looks like. Um, more, we're looking for something more specific than just, does this seem right to me? And, and Annette just saying, oh, well, my Judaism takes ethics seriously. And what I mean by that is just doing what I think is obviously the right thing to do. We want something a little bit more complex and that might at least accommodate some humility about thinking we might be wrong or we might be kind of misunderstanding the, the overall ethical situation. So at the same time, we often have a sense, I think that mitzvot ben adam lechavero, you know, commandments between, between people are both central to Judaism and also kind of underdefined or not spelled out super clearly, right? So we, we have a general sense that it's good to, let's say, care for the vulnerable, but we might not always have at the same, at the same time, a clear sense of what that looks like in every situation. So Philosophers are really good at kind of those narrower drilled down kinds of questions of like, what does it look like in this situation? How would we think about it in that situation? Um, and for that reason, I think philosophical tools can be really, really useful. So what I wanna do 
before we jump into really what is ethics of care is I want to do like a crash course and in introduction to ethical theory in like five, no more than 10 minutes, certainly hoping for closer to five. Um, so that we can see what it is that care ethicists are responding to when they put forward their ethical theory. Um, and as I, as I go through these texts, which are, are non-Jewish texts, I want to, um, I want you to think a little bit about like kind of where you might see resonances or things that seem analogous in Judaism, because then when the care ethics ethicists come along and start contesting some of the stuff we're talking about, then you might see some interesting interactions with with Jewish sources. So with that, I'm going to share my screen so that you can see the texts. Okay, somebody give me just like a thumbs up or a nod if you see the sources. Hooray. Okay, and they're like big enough to read. Amazing. Okay, good. So for, I would say like the, for, for a long time, the kind of dominant ways of thinking about ethics fall into two types. The first type is we're gonna call virtue ethics, though it's got lots of different names, doesn't matter. Aristotle, important core early philosopher is going to just write a description of the ethical or ethics in terms of the virtues, in terms of character development. So we can see this in a, in a kind of classic passage from him. Virt he's going to give lots of definitions of virtue. Here's one. Virtue then is of two sorts, virtue of thought and virtue of character. Virtue of thought arises and grows mostly from teaching. That is why it, it, it needs experience and time, right? So if you want to learn to be a good thinker, you need to spend some time doing it and practicing it over and over again. Should sound familiar. Virtue of character, i.e. of ethos, right? This is where we get our word ethics, the Greek word, results from habit, from doing the same thing over and over again. Hence its name, ethical, slightly varied from the Greek word ethos. For what we do in our dealings with other people makes some of us just, some unjust. What we do in terrifying situations and the habits of fear or confidence that we acquire makes some of us brave and others of us cowardly. The same is true of situations involving appetites and anger. For one or another sort of conduct in these situations makes some temperate and some mild, others intemperate and irascible. To sum it up in a single account, a state of character results from the repetition of similar, similar activities. So if we want to be a good virtue ethicist and we want to think about ethics in this way, the question we want to ask is, what kind of person would I be if I went around doing a certain kind of an action, right? So if I want to be a just person, I better be the kind of person who does just things regularly, all the time, not just sort of once in a while. But what I'm looking at is the whole picture of the person. So sometimes philosophers like to call this um, an agent-centered approach where we are looking mostly at the person overall, not just whether they did one good thing in one situation, but kind of what's the big picture. So that's one side of the coin. Now we're going to go to like kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from the philosophical perspective. And this is our friend Immanuel Kant, who we've given you a very a, a nice little small chunk of, but he's, he's sort of considered the father of the school of what philosophers love to call deontology, very like technical term, but um, thinking about ethics in terms of rules, right? So you might think that what ethics is, is just behaving according to the right rules. You're gonna sort of follow a set of things that tell you what to do. And if you do all of those things, everything that you have some moral duty to do, then you're, you're doing well, right? Kant wants to tell you that it's not just that it's about rules, but it's actually about rules that I make for myself, right? So here, here's what he's going to say in the, in the part that I bolded for you. It was seen then that the human being is bound by, to laws by his duty, but it never occurred to them, these are wrong ethicists, that he is subject only to laws given by himself. So the person makes laws for himself, but still universal and that he is bound only to act in conformity with his own will, which however, in accordance with nature's end is a will giving universal law. Now there's a lot like a philosophy speak here, but let's just break it down. So everybody makes a law for themselves. That law, however, is not just particular to me. It's not just Sarah's law or Jonathan's law. It's actually in the end, everybody makes the same law. 
So it's true that I legislate my law for myself, but actually everybody makes the same law together. So there's a set of rules. Khan has a whole procedure for telling us how, how exactly what they are. We're not gonna get into that mess for the moment, but there's a set of rules that we follow. And we can actually decide what the set of rules ought to be just by going through a certain kind of like thought experiment to think through what, it, what are the rules I would choose to legislate for myself. That picture, the, the Kantian picture where there's a sort of imagined set of rules that I legislate for myself has a kind of a cousin, let's say, in political philosophy. So not just talking about what's ethical for me to do, but ethically, but, but um, the right thing to do for a whole political system. And the, the passage that we're, the next passage from Hobbes is really important um, to understand the characteristics we're gonna talk about because they love to hate this passage. They find it and they go crazy because they're like, how could he possibly say this crazy thing? So here's a crazy thing that he says, let us consider men as if but now sprung out of the earth and suddenly like mushrooms come to full maturity without all kind of engagement to each other. So Hobbes is gonna say, I want you to, when I, when I want you to figure out how to live with other people in some kind of political environment, what I want you to do is imagine people as if they were like mushrooms that just spring up out of nowhere. They have no background. The question is like, why would Hobbes wanna say this thing, which is on the basic level kind of silly, right? It's a silly, it's a silly metaphor. The, the idea he's got in his head is there's something kind of inherently worrisome about people's family connections and identity and sort of particular sense of who they are that's a threat to other people. So if I have one particular identity and you have your particular identity and they clash, oh no, we're not gonna be, have, be able to have a very good political conversation. So when I come into the political public sphere, I better check all that family stuff at the door, right? I am a mushroom, I came out of nowhere. I don't have parents, I don't have siblings, I don't have any of it. Because that is for Hobbes, the stuff of conflict. And he's really, I mean, he's a thinker steeped in the English Civil War and all kinds of complicated moments in his own political reality. So he's like really worried about this. Okay, so we've now done intro to, philosophy, intro to moral philosophy for freshmen in, in a semester in six minutes. Way to go, everybody. Um, why do, what, what's important here? I wanna just pull out all of the kinds of senses of abstraction or even of just like distancing from your normal life that has gone on here, right? So with Hobbes, we've decided we're gonna check our family life at the door. That's one way which like you're just distancing yourself from your lived reality. For Kant, it's about a law I legislate for myself, but in some sort of thought experiment. And actually what's particular about me is not all that important. It's sort of gone, right? What's particular about me and different than other people, not really that important. And similarly, in a lot of ways with Aristotle, Aristotle is gonna say, there are, th we want the person to become a certain kind of person and there are limits to our capacities, but in the end, there's kind of a right way to be. And there's a, there's a right way to be just, there's a right way to be fair, there's a right way to be courageous. Okay, and we just wanna aspire to that. So now I want now we have enough background to really dig into what is this care ethics business and why why should we care about it. Um, actually, before I go on, I just want to make sure that there are no questions. Does anyone want to either unmute themselves or write a question in the chat before we proceed? Anybody? This was just the warm up. Okay. Well, if you think of something, feel free. All right, so the question is now, what's this care ethics thing and what does it have to do with these abstractions that I've pulled out for you? So um, in the 1980s, there was a growing consensus that the philosophical tradition as a whole, the sort of Western uh, European philosophical tradition was inadequate. And it was inadequate because it didn't account for 
all kinds of different experiences, especially experiences that, that tended to be had by women of caring for vulnerable people. So caring for young children, for the elderly, for the sick, etc. And there was actually a psychologist named Carol Gilligan who came along and said, well, there's, when we talk to men and women about ethics, they actually sound different. Men, men will tend to talk in virtue terms or in deontological and in, in rule terms, and women will talk in terms of caring for people. Turns out the psychological research was like not super clearly wonderful, um, but philosophers jumped on this because they wanted to find a way to bring in the particular experiences of caring for this person in front of me, not just any, any given person, um, to bring that to the center of philosophical conversations. So I guess the, the big question I want you to think about over the course of this three-part series is, what does it look like to bring those experiences to the center of our Jewish conversation? And either that will be, that will sort of take two forms. One is like a really serious act of like shifting our focus, right? Which is the same kind of move that philosophers were trying to do in the 80s and 90s into today kind of a, a pivot, or noticing ways that these things were actually already there in the sources, and maybe we just didn't look for them or didn't see them in the same way. So I hope by the end of the series, you have some sense of what it would be like, like what it would look like to put these things at the center, either to see them when they've been there all along, or actually to like take the camera and turn it to a different place that we've, we've normally been pointing at. Okay. So I want us to spend a little time with Virginia Held, who's I think in a lot of ways, one of the offers one of the clearest statements of care ethics um, in philosophical terms um, in a book usefully titled Ethics of Care. Okay, so here's what she has to say. And I think it just gives you, she's very good at just like laying out what are the things that she thinks are important. All right, the ethics of care values the ties we have with particular other persons, right? You can already see, like, I don't want you to check your family at the door, right? Particular other persons and all of their specificity and the actual relationships that partly constitute their identity. Although persons often may and should reshape their relationships with others, distancing themselves from some persons and groups and developing or strengthening ties with others, the autonomy sought within the ethics of care is a capacity to reshape and cultivate new relations, not to ever more closely resemble the unnumbered abstract rational self of liberal political moralities. So she's like, there's a problem here with this abstraction notion, which is that you might try to sort of fit yourself into the box of the abstract person with no past, right? You can, we can imagine all kinds of narratives where this might happen, where someone wants to distance themselves from where they came from and just see if they can like enter this, this sort of pure intellectual realm. And she's going to say like, that's not a way, good way to go. I don't want to do that. Those motivated by the ethics of care would seek to become more admirable re relational persons in, in better caring relations. So what I want to do if I'm a care ethicist is see if I can improve and cultivate caring relationships with particular other people. Okay. Now it's important to see that for her, this has the effect of sort of breaking down the whole system. So it's not just that like, oh yeah, we were really paying attention to like caring for young children, but now we're gonna talk about that some of the time. But actually she thinks it's a challenge that goes right to the core. So here's what she said. The ethics of care is a deep challenge to other moral theories, all the ones that I just introduced for you in the, the six minute whirlwind tour. It takes the experiences of women in caring activities such as mothering as central, interprets and emphasizes the values inherent in caring practices, shows the inadequacies of other theories for dealing with the moral aspects of caring activity, and then considers generalizing the insights of caring to other questions of morality. So instead of saying, oh, let me see what laws I can legislate for myself. And then if it ends up being about care, that's like fine, right? Which is sort of what a, what a Kantian picture often looks like. Um, she says, recentering this will have a lot of effects. And actually, she didn't say it super clearly in this passage, but in other places, she expresses a lot of hope 
for the way that if we focus our philosophical attention this way and our political attention this way, things could really kind of economically change. There can be big shifts across a wide range of um, wide range of places. In a way, I think that makes her both like really like empowering and wonderful to read and also very frustrating because to the extent that this philosophical project has been successful, its effects have been not as successful. Um, okay, so what are these women's experiences that she wants to talk about? I want you to, to notice this because and hold it in your head if you're coming for coming along for the whole ride for session three because it will pop up again. But I want to notice what experiences she, she takes as central. Women's experiences typically included cultivating special relationships with family and friends rather than primarily dealing impartially with strangers, right? So not a Hobbesian picture of enter the public sphere and check your, check your family at the door and providing large amounts of caring labor for children and often for ill or elderly family members. So if we want a political philosophy that will take women seriously, we have to take these experiences seriously is what she's gonna say. So again, this is a good place to think about like, what would it look like to make these kinds of caring for your you know, elderly parents or grandparents, caring for young children as like the central activity that we are doing at Jewish communities. What would that look like? What would have to change, right? Reimagine every conversation we've ever had about an Arif right now. Okay, just like to give you one example. Affectionate sensitivity and responsiveness to need may seem to provide better moral guidance for what should be done in these contexts than do abstract rules or rational calculations of individual utility. So it can't just be right that we're gonna like come up with a set of rules we're supposed to follow or even a set of character traits that we're supposed to emulate because that's not gonna respond to this sort of particularly um, potentially feminine, coded feminine picture of um, of, or a set of experiences that philosophy hasn't tended to take all that seriously. All right, so I want us to now think about what on earth does all of this have to do with Judaism and what is sort of more broadly, what does this have to do with religion, right? The, the thinkers I've given you up to this point are not Jews. They're not thinking in these kinds of terms, but there are ways in which religious categories and ideas pop up in this literature and kind of being cued into that will I think help us in the sources that we're gonna read in the, the second half of our conversation today. So um, Nell Noddings is a care ethicist who comes even a little bit actually before Virginia Held um, and writes a, a, a usefully titled book called Caring. Um, all right, so she is gonna focus on a moment that actually pops up a lot in care ethics literature, which is the moment that stereotypically a mother, though we might imagine it could be any parent, holds their child for the first time. And this moment is like the moment that they love to talk about all the time. And in the, in the third session, we're gonna spend some time like kind of subverting that and thinking about like other models that could pop up that don't focus exclusively on this moment. But for the moment, no pun intended. I want you to just like see what she has to say about this and see where there are kind of theological like things bubbling up. All right, so for many women, motherhood is the single greatest source of strength for the maintenance of the ethical idea. Whenever you see the ethical idea in prose like this, just delete the and idea and just read ethics. It's much clearer, right? So motherhood is a central force in people's um, for many women in the, their sense of what it means to be an ethical person and what it means to act ethically. The young woman who has just given birth to a child may, if she has a religious faith, turn in wonder and gratitude toward God, the God she thanks for the safe delivery of her child. But she may equally well lie awake all night thinking on this strange God. Okay, what does she think is strange about God? What then of God or gods? Why, she wonders, would an all-knowing, all-good God create a world in which his creatures must eat each other to survive? There's like a, she, you almost wonder if she's hearing Eicha, she's hearing the Book of Lamentations and mothers eating their children here. Um, why, oh why, would he withhold his physical presence from them? Why would he demand that they, much needier and weaker, love him? 
So in some of these sources, you see this kind of like frustration with traditional theologies. Um, but one thing that's sort of popping up here is on the one hand, there's a sense of like, to give it Jewish language, like almost Kedusha in this moment, she knew there's like something theological that makes her want to this, this character that Nanings is imagining makes her want to sort of engage religiously. But at the same time, she's dissatisfied with the categories that exist, this character. And she's dissatisfied with a God who seems abstract, right? Remember, we were already frustrated by abstractions in other kind of technical philosophical ways. Now we're frustrated by abstraction theologically. And we were also getting to be frustrated with a kind of set of demands that, that a God might, an abstract, let's say, set of demands that an abstract God might, might make of you. And also that that God seems distant from caring labor, right? Carry, like, let's just postulate for the moment that like eating, the creatures eating each other to survive on the one hand and um, caring on the other are sort of posed as opposites. And she's about to, she, this character is about to engage in some kind of caring labor and God seems totally distant from that. And so she's, this, this woman is frustrated by this picture of God. All right. Um, so what I wanna, what I wanna suggest to you, um, what I want to suggest to you is the, that in rabbinic sources, we see places where this, both this conception, a sort of Hobbesian conception of like what the public space looks like, and also this conception of God as divorce from care are kind of either actively or not so actively rejected and replaced with different pictures that I think, you know, wouldn't lead to the same kinds of frustrations that Nodding's have, has though I could easily, if I had, if I had sort of dug up the right things, have brought you Jewish feminists who have the same kinds of frustrations with a God who seems distant, who seems not interested in, in care, et cetera, who seems kind of stereotypically male. All right, so I, what I brought for you today in the, in the next chunk are two little, two pieces of rabbinic text which I think give you a sense of some of these, um, some of these ways in which care ethics can can kind of pop pop back up. All right. Questions or reactions before we head on? Uh, we have some reactions in the chats from before. Oh, lovely! Oh, yes, I see them. Uh huh. Right. So yeah, John, you're right about the 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 Arab conversation. I think this is like one place where like what it would mean to take an ethic of care seriously like would would come to the fore um, by sort of not having that be derivative, right? Like there's a way in which the the issue of like what does it mean to create a, a public Jewish space where no children can go um, or no babies can go is like the first question and not like five questions down the page. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. I have to, I have to pause through, go through Ozzy's comment a little bit more carefully. So Ozzy says, the eth ethics of care sounds very logical, or it sounds like Hobbes' social contract, except the contract is between the child and the mother. Logical meaning Aristotle logical. That's interesting. Is it a social contract between the child and the mother? So it could be, except for the following like little, little trick, which is in passages I didn't bring you, but elsewhere, um, one of the things that they want to talk about because they want to get away from this like individualized notion of what the person is, is that all care occurs in a network. So it's not just that like there's a child, you know, parent cares for child, but also parent cares for child, but so does, you know, teacher or, or child caregiver. And, and then also the parent needs various kinds of care. So the parents got a doctor and maybe they have a therapist and maybe they have friends who they talk to about all their issues with the child. So everything is sort of in a network. And it's not really possible to identify like who is on which end of the, of the thing. And at the, the other piece of this is that, right, if it were really a contract between the parent and the child, 
first of all, the child would have to be old enough to like actually make a contract, which doesn't really happen. Um, but second of all, the whole picture is predicated on the fact that everyone, 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 everyone requires care. And the idea that there are some people who are like quote unquote independent and don't require care is a kind of farce that we've been, we've a, a kind of trick we've been deluded into thinking that by this whole tradition of philosophy. But in fact, everyone requires care at least at some point in their life, right? If you, no one took care of you as a baby, you would not survive. Um, but also that you probably require care in lots of different ways that you don't necessarily take seriously. So it's not that like I have a social contract with my kid, but everyone is involved in a net of caring relations that can either go well or go badly. And we have some picture of what it looks like for a caring relationship to go well. Is that helpful? Yeah? Okay, amazing. So now I want us to spend some time with this text from, um, Yeah, in Hobbes, okay, just, just Ozzy, it's not a, in Hobbes, it's a village with one leader, right? So in Hobbes, not all, like the whole situation is real, is, is dealt with by a sovereign who is the supreme powerful force. And a carethicist like just kind of has no time for that approach like very directly. They're just like, I don't want the, the, that much power in that many hands. It's not going to work for a model that's like all about networks. Okay. So I want us to spend some time with this little Brita. And it's just a little Brita. And you might have thought, oh, that's a nice little Brita. I don't really need to think about it that much. I want us to spend like a few minutes actually really unpacking this little Brita because I think within it is kind of, it's, it's both useful kind of for its content, but also useful for thinking about um, what is especially, where might we see things that like, if we had a kind of care ethics lens, where would we see things in Jewish sources differently? And what, where would we focus our attention? All right. So here's a nice little Breita de Tanya. In Moshivin Sanhedrin Zakein Visaris, the Misha Ein Lobanim, Reb Yehuda Mosif, Af Achtari, Vechilufehen Bemesi, De Rahmana Amar, Lotach Mol Velotechasalev. All right, so we learned in a nice Breita. You shouldn't put somebody who's old or who is a eunuch or someone who does not have children on a Sanhedrin, on a like supreme rabbinic court. Okay, if you have just that Brita, don't cheat and read Rabbi Yehuda. Why would you think that this would be the case? Why would you not want a Zakain Saris and Misha in Lobanim on a on a rabbinic court? Does anyone want to want to jump onto the chat and give us some possible answers here? or unmute yourself and just say stuff. You can just talk. Go ahead, Shira. I can see you're raising your hand. Maybe as Akin just isn't as sharp as he used to be that in previous years he could have been, but now we'll give it to the younger generation. Right, so maybe with as Akin, your problem is like, I don't really, I don't know. Like he's just too old. He's not as super sharp. We wanna replace him with someone younger. Totally plausible. I've, I'm interested then, right? Like, what's with this Saris and Misha Ein Lobanim? Because you could easily imagine that Misha Ein Lobanim is super young. That's why he doesn't have kids yet, right? So I don't know, like, how do, our, how do all of these things fit together? Anyone else? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Maybe somebody becomes more compassionate by when they have children. Great. So. I want to suggest, so that's exactly what Rashi says. Um, and Rashi says it, I think, because he's reading this, the Seifa of this, kind of against that. So he's going to say, Rabbi Yehuda, right? He's going to read the Rabbi Yehuda line and kind of impute back. So how does he do that? Rabbi Yehuda Mosif af achzeri. So we don't put somebody who's kind of, wicked. So it must be that the, those other people are kind of like 
if what we're worried about is wickedness, maybe they're sort of not sufficiently merciful at minimum, right? And you can, it even gets a little stronger, and the same, the reverse is true for a rebellious person. Why? Because the Torah says you should show him no pity or compassion and don't shield him. So if it's about pity or compassion, then it seems like, and the, and when you want someone to show no pity or compassion, you do let these people on a Sanhedrin, then presumably having children somehow makes you more compassionate. Right? That's that's the kind of logic that leads leads Rashi down that down that route. Now, the question I have for you is like, how or why? Right? So I think I'm just gonna throw out some options. I'm not wedded to any any particular one. Um, I think could be all of them, right? So one is it actually might make you more more merciful towards a perpetrator, right? Um, you're less likely to be kind of cruel. And I think that's the sort of straightforward reading that's bright on because at least if you're gonna read kind of harmonistically the way I've just suggested, then the the desire to get rid of the the desire to flip it around with the the Macy, the rebellious person seems to be about the accused right um so maybe you're like imagining that it could have been your kid who messed up and therefore you're going to be merciful towards the person you're judging but it seems like it could just as easily go the other way around right you're concerned you have your mercy towards the injured party because could easily have been your kid who's the injured party right could have gone the other way. Um, it might make you also more merciful towards the victim because right, you're worried about kind of the general culture of the situation that you're in. So I think no matter how you spin this story, it's going to be a story about some fact, some, some, something that goes on in your psychology when you are taking care of a child that makes that like, primes you to be more merciful. All right, so the, the, the question then is like, who, in the minds of the rabbis, right? So you well, let's back up one step. You might have thought, ah, oh, this is a great ethics of care text because it's super clear. It's like really good in order to have this kind of mercy that leads you to be a good judge. You have to have had children. You have to have engaged in some kind of care, right? It's like, ah, oh, you pick that this is like, just the cherry on top that you wanted. I'm gonna like deflate that slightly, which is that what kind of care were the rabbis actually engaged in? Non-obvious question. The answer is a little complicated. Um, there are other sources that we can use to piece together various things, but it seems like it's possible that the rabbis are engaged in really day-to-day -day, like literal childcare. Um, and it's possible that they're not at all and that they're basically spending their time in the baby trash. In which case it's much more like a kind of psychological, like I know I have someone out there and less actually a real kind of strong ethics of care. So again, like depends what lens you wanna to bring to this text and what you want, what you wanna, you know, where you wanna put your emphasis. But at minimum, there's, there's kind of good, there are good, there's what to go on here to say that there's a kind of, one's halachic judgment is made better by one's attachment to one's family and not made worse, right? This is a kind of an inversion of, of Hobbes in a certain way, right? If you wanna enter the public sphere, wanna enter public life, there's something beneficial about having had this experience of having had children. Okay, so in a certain way, I think that text gives you a taste at least of what it would be like to kind of correct the, to, to go in a sort of pro-care ethics direction um, with rabbinic sources in the ways that rabbinic sources kind of already do that for you um, with respect to what we can learn ethically and morally from the, the personal experiences we have of care. So that's the kind of first piece. And then remember in the second piece, I gave you this, this stuff about theology, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and what would it look like for God to be caring or not? So I want to read this midrash with you, which I think um, also is Rebbe Yehuda. A lot of the care ethics texts are Rebbe Yehuda. Actually, you will you will notice this as we go through. It's it's kind of interesting, um, and it's a it's a little midrash about Shiratayam, the Song of the Sea. 
wherein God seems to be basically parenting. So here we go. All right. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, who said this song of praise at the Song of the Sea? Answer. Okay, first of all, it's not such a well-formed question because it seems like we kind of know the answer, right? The answer is Israel at the sea when they got to the other side. Not a hard question. Okay, but we're the Midrash, so we want to like fill stuff out. All right. Hatino cooked. It's the, the babies or the children. Let's go with young children for now. Otansha haya, let's, I don't want you to like, don't, uh, all that is to say, don't let the modern Hebrew of Tinokot at like a baby, baby prejudice you about who these kids are. Otansha hayu paro mivakesh lashlich layaor, shehem makirin lakadosh baruchu. The ones who sang the song were the children that Paro, that, Paro wanted to throw into the river because those ones know God. Okay, puzzling statement. Kate said, well, how is this the case? All right, so how is this the case? When a woman, when Israel was in Egypt and a woman of the children of Israel was about to give birth, she would go out into the field and give birth there. And then she would leave the child to God. Just leaves the child there. Okay. Notice, right, they already know, they know God, and we're about to find out why, because they were left to God. You need, I, God, I did what I needed to do. Now it's your turn. Okay, I want to come back to that line in a moment. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Okay, so then God came down, or God's honor, you know, sort of as if it were the case that we could talk about God this way. Um, God came down and cut their umbilical cords and washed them and anointed them or washed them and put oil on them. As it says in Yechazkel, Mechein Yechazkel Amar, and then, okay, we're going to go through all these verses. All right, so then we're going to go back to this, this um, kind of metaphor in, in the book of Yechezkel, in which Israel is described as a baby left in the field, Israel, the nation. And so the Midrash is going to take this story about Israel, the nation, as a metaphor being left in the field and kind of reread it to be about Israel actually being in its blood, like an actual baby being in its blood in the field, right? So on the day you were born, you were left lying, rejected as in the open field. Now, again, this is, a, this is a place where you see the rabbis kind of twisting the biblical text, because in, the, in Yechezkel, the fact that you were abandoned is, is a sort of metaphor for like almost persecution or lost, the kind of lostness of the people. And here it's like their mother abandoned them because they were being persecuted by Egypt. Okay, you were left lying rejected in the open field. And as for your birth, when you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. And I clothed you with embroidered garments and I bathed you in water. Okay, all, the, all these nice things that, um, that God comes and does for the child. And they've got a nice, good textual basis. All right. <laughs> So God would suckle them with milk in one hand and honey in the other, right? 
as it says, he fed him honey from the rock and they grew as if they were plants of the field, as it says, I let you grow like plants of the field. Now what's notable about plants, if not mushrooms, right? Is that they grow on their own. They don't need their parent plant to come and take care of them. But God seems to be caring for them at least some in some fashion. All right. Okay. So this is where I said, I wanted you to not get biased by the modern Hebrew Tino coach because these kids seem to be walking around and talking. Now, maybe that's the kind of miraculous voice of the Midrash. Maybe that's because they're like kind of young children who can, who can talk. Um, but they, they grew up at least a little bit. So when they grow up, they go to their, their houses where their parents lived, which they seem to know where they are. Again, maybe that's the miraculous voice of the Midrash. Maybe that's some other thing that's gone on here. All right. Um, and somebody asked them, who was taking care of you? Like, how did you survive at all? So, who took care of you? A nice, fine looking and praiseworthy young man came and took care of everything we needed. As it says, my beloved is clear skinned and ready, preeminent among 10,000. Nice verse from Song of Songs. All right. When Israel came to, to the ocean, to like to the other side of the ocean, uh, to the sea, those children were there. We are the, this is the one who did all those things for us when we were in Egypt. Right, they're literally pointing saying that's the one. Okay, wow, crazy Midrash, beautiful Midrash and very sweet in some ways, right? Um, there are these children, they're kind of recognizing God in a way that their parents can't. So there's a way in which this is a kind of good antidote Right? You could sort of hand this midrash to this, this woman who's like, what is going on with this God who has nothing to do with care? You could hand this midrash over and say, well, look, here's a text that imagines God as like one of the central, central ways that we come to recognize God is by the way that God cares for children, at least in some way, right? And God caring for the children who themselves did not have anyone to care for them because of some sort of underlying persecution or problem. So on the one hand, right, we, we might say that that's what's going on. But I want to kind of complicate that up for a minute, which is what, who isn't doing the caring here? The answer is a human being, right? The mother is absent. The mother goes and says, okay, God, I did what I was supposed to do. Now it's your turn. I think there are a few different ways to read that. I'm interested if you have thoughts, please share them. Um, one is a kind of exasperation, right? It's like, look, I just, I can't do it in this world, this like culture, I cannot survive. And so it, I, there's nothing I can do. I have to just hand this over to you because like you are not doing your job. Right? Not in the sense of like your job is to like suckle this baby, but your job is to create a world in which it's like possible for me to do that. And you failed. So like, I did what I was supposed to do. Now it's your problem. I think that's, that could easily be what's going on, right? In which case, like we're, we're I think willing, at least I'm willing to kind of sit with that and feel like that seems justified in the context of this horrible situation with Paro and the rest of it. 
But I also think that we shouldn't get like too carried away with our care ethics framing and say, oh yeah, like this is text that totally makes good sense. Like this is a totally reasonable position for the woman to be in. And it's, it's actually like, she's behaving totally reasonable. She hands them over to God and there's no problem here. Like the Midrash may be portraying a neglectful parent, right? And it may want you to know that. And the women here are not the kind of like righteous midwife picture, right? That we get in the biblical text itself, but instead a kind of somebody who's just opting out. Like, I can't, I can't care for this anymore. And then God sweeps it and does all the things the woman is supposed to have done. And notice, notice one thing, when they go back, they go back to their families. Now, avotehen can just mean parents, right? That could all be all that's going on. But at minimum, we don't see the women's voice appear. It could be that the women's voice is, is this voice who says, who took care of you? It may be the fathers. It may be both of them. But we don't see a kind of distinct form of like feminine particular caring, right? We see something else going on. So at minimum, I think in this Midrash, it's not so clear that like God's care is this model that then humans are sort of supposed to emulate or something. If anything, like human beings in this Midrash are portrayed as not particularly caring at all. And they're kind of juxtaposed to this God who sweeps in and cares for them and who even right to the the generation beyond the children um that God that caring God is not recognizable right so one of the things I think this Midrash does and this is kind of the 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 one of the versions of the thread that I want to pull through all three sessions is one of the things that Midrash does is at the same time that it kind of centers care and makes us think about care, makes us think about its, its, um, its importance, it also kind of untangles what happens to people who feel like they can't care in the way that they want to. Um, and so I think in this text, it's a, it's a form of exasperation. It's like, I just can't handle it. Um, but there might be other, other things that are, that are going on. Um, and so some of these, these rabbinic texts that we're going to look at over the next three sessions are texts that help us see the ways that just a kind of pure rosy care picture that's just about the like sweet interaction between the mother and child is sort of insufficient because it doesn't capture like all of the kind of wide range of human experiences of care, including ones where like your ability to, to care in the way that you want to is, is thwarted. Something that, you know, unfortunately is, is resonant to our culture. Um, I'm going to take just a couple of these questions, and then in the meantime, you can uh, you can hop in with some more as we go. Um, so Shira asks us about this shelach. The short answer is I don't. I, I wish it were a feminine god language, but I don't think it is. It would be so lovely. Um, no, I think this is just kind of like rabbinic Hebrew doing its weird thing. Yeah, um, but. The idea, right, even if she's saying, there are lots of ways to read this remark, but one way to read it is, you are the God who cares for people. That's a kind of natural and obvious thing for me to say. Now do it, right? Which, which means that she's not in the same place as this Nell Nodding's character, right? She's in a different place. She thinks that it totally makes sense for God to care and God is kind of doing a lousy job, potentially, or, on the flip side, she has like really a lot of faith in this per in this God's ability to care. And so she's gonna just hand over her child. Like, you know, yeah. Um, one other thing I wanna point out is that about this Midrash is that right in our in our standard picture of what's going on with Israelite women giving birth in Egypt, they are not alone when they're doing it right? They're with the midwives who are then doing all kinds of things to help them. Now there's all kinds of biblical criticism about like, who are the midwives, et cetera? Are they Jewish? Are they not? 
No matter what you think about that, the simple fact is they're there. Here in this story, they go out and give birth in the field. Potentially, not with anybody else there. Certainly we don't see anybody else there in the Midrash, right? There's just nobody, nobody present. So that's another place where care seems absent rather than present in this text, right? Nobody is actually caring for this, this poor woman who's, who's giving birth alone. Okay. John, you say, this is a critique of God for not allowing an ethics of care when the Jewish people are especially explicitly burgeoning. Yeah, I think that the population point is super important, right? Um, this is a story where lots of, um, you know, I'm taking place at a moment where there are lots of births um, and God is sort of totally, totally absent. And then you've got to ask yourself, right? The critique is made worse by this Midrash, not made better. I don't know if when you said this is a critique, whether you meant like the line, this line specifically or the kind of whole Midrash, but there's something so perverse about the fact that if what's going on is she's saying, you haven't done your job by setting up a, a world in which we can care, then God's like, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll like sweep in now, right? In a certain way, again, that picture of God is not a God who's into the like networks of care. That's Hobbes, that's a kind of Hobbes style God who comes in and is like, hi, I'm in charge. I'm gonna either do the thing or I'm not. But what's going on with the kind of um, community is not relevant, right? The mother, again, is not participating. In a certain way in this Midrash, we can have one of two options. We can have the mother, doing the care, or we can have God doing the care. But we never get both, right? Which seems like probably what we what we sort of ought to want. Um, fascinating, Rachel in, and intercessory prayer as a contrast. John, can you say like one more sentence about what you mean by that? In, in the sense that if you picked a Midrash about Rachel uh, uh, interceding in, on behalf of her children with, with prayer and God responding to that, that, that's another avenue to talk about how Judaism responds to an ethics of care in the sense that, 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 that's what, that it's Rachel's specific tears about, about her children that, that moves God and, and some of those. Yeah, right. So again, I think that's a super helpful intertext, right? Um, and, and very Parsha relevant, or at least last week, a couple of weeks ago, Parsha relevant. Um, She's, again, it's like God is moved when there's a mother lamenting the child who is not with her, right? In the same, like, ki enena. She doesn't have them. And that's what kind of, like, triggers the whole thing. Here, here too, a similar thing goes on, right? It's like, I will take care of this child you know, whether that child be kind of Ephraim, capital E, right? Or like this actual baby, but only if you're kind of out of the picture. Now here we don't get a lament, but we get somebody distant at minimum. So I'm, I'm sorry to have made this like really beautiful and sweet midrash less sweet for you. Um, I hope that you can like reach back to find the initial sweetness. That is, that is totally there in this text. Um, but I think it, it, it gives us a sense of like the kind of real, real way in which the, the sweet moments and, and some of these more intense and, and difficult ones are, are linked together. Um, and I'm looking forward to learning with you in the next two sessions. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah, for a wonderful first class in this series. I'm really looking forward to the next one. And thank you to everyone else who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our fall program tomorrow at 8 p.m. with the first part of a three-part session with Rabbi Shlomo Zakir on virtual reality and genuine humanity. Can they co coexist? In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this opportunity to uh, learn with you, Sarah. 
And for everyone else who attended, we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes, Adresha. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.